<clears throat> uh, thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate um, especially the asking for prayer. Um, we, we, we feel prayed for, but we also feel um, the need uh, to know we're being prayed for. And we've been, um, I've been on staff of this church. I've been a pastor of this church for two years, but I've been hanging around here for about nine years now, which is crazy. Um, I said at the first service, the, when we moved in 07 here uh, to Greenville, this was to do campus work at Furman. This was the first church that I preached at in town back when they met at Pendleton Street. And so we, we love this church. We love you. Um, and thank you for, for loving us. Thank you for being um, tolerant of me. And um, we're so happy to be partnering. I mean, I, it's not a goodbye. We'll be around for a couple more months, but we're turning kind of 100% attention uh, to this work that, that you guys have called us to do. And we're well underway, and we're excited what God's going to do. If you have any questions about it, um, I'll, get, I'll be giving updates, but um, I would love to talk to you more about it if you want to know kind of the details. Uh, the last couple of weeks, Jake had been preaching through the Gospel of, of Luke, um, looked at a couple different passages in Luke. And so uh, this morning, I, I wanted to continue that. And we're going to jump a little bit further ahead in Luke, but um, Luke's got this long uh, travel narrative. It's this kind of space where Jesus is on a journey. He's going towards Jerusalem, and along the way, he's talking to people. He's got followers that are joining in, who are watching some of his miracles, who are asking him all sorts of questions. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at really two different encounters uh, that Jesus has in Luke chapter 13. There's a couple months ago, there was an editorial that, was, that came out in the New York Times by Nicholas Kristof, who's been a journalist for a long time. He does a lot of kind of human rights uh, pieces. And this, this particular editorial caught my eye, and, and not even so much for the content. I kind of remember the content, but it was mainly the title that caught my eye. And the, the title was uh, A Confession, which first of all, when you see an editorial and it says a confession, you're drawn in. A confession of liberal intolerance. Now, I'm not making any comment at all about where you stand politically. Um, I hope there's a lot of diversity of where we stand politically. What caught my eye in this is that Nicholas Kristof is um, very well known for saying that he is a lean, he leans far to the left, or he leans he's a liberal. He call himself a liberal, and he was confessing simply the fact that he thinks he got some stuff wrong, and. It caused, obviously, a lot of tension in a lot of places because some people don't want to do that. Other people want to rejoice in that. Um, but overall, I just I, I felt like it struck me that it's really rare when we see somebody ta- who has a national platform use it to say, I think I might be wrong. Um, I think I may have made a mistake. I, I think it's okay for us to, to talk about that. We come to this passage, and what we see is that Jesus is always wanting us to do that. Uh, that Jesus is always wanting us to, to step back and to take a look at ourselves. He was always with religious people. He was always with people um, who were there because a lot of them were there because they wanted to be there. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And he was always saying, let's take a look honestly at who we are. Um, and so the passage I'm going to read to you um, 
It's a little bit strange in some ways. I wish there was more of the, the details in this passage. I often do when I read Scripture. I want to hear the whole story. Um, but this is one of those, those times when people come up to Jesus and start talking to him, and this is what they say. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, these are the true words of God. He gives them to us because um, He loves us. He wants us. He wants us to know Him and to know the truth. And so let's ask Him to help us to understand. Father, we've already confessed this morning um, that we are people who are bent away from, really from grace, that we like to receive it, but we don't always like to give it. That we're bent a lot towards pride and towards blame. And Father, this morning, um, as hard as it is for us to do, it's so joyful when we actually can see ourselves honestly. Because what we start to see is, is how sweet Jesus is and how sweet his love is for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a people um, this morning who can look in the mirror as Jesus is always dragging us in front of the mirror to look at ourselves. I pray that you would help us to do that this morning. And we ask this in, in his name, in his name alone. Amen. You know, there's certain words that we just all, we don't like, Right? Um, and they might be like words kind of have texture, almost like food has texture. And some of us are texture sensitive and there's some foods, they just don't go well, you know, in our mouth. It doesn't feel right. And they're kind of hard for us to swallow. We don't like them. And there's some words that we just don't, we have a hard time with. We don't like the way they feel. They kind of make our skin crawl. You may have been sitting sort of in a, in a sermon or in a speech and somebody said that word over and over. Have you ever been in that experience before? Said the word that makes your skin crawl over and over again, and you're like, I got to get out of here. I think for some of us, um, that one of those words that is really, can be really difficult and cannot really set well with us is, is the word repent. And I don't know you know, what kind of image that word conjures for you. But I've lived in the Southeast all my life. I've kind of lived in the Bible Belt. And even as somebody who's been in church and grown up in church, when I hear this word repent, um, kind of my mind immediately goes towards sort of a billboard driving down 85 that's like, repent. Or I think of, you know, a snake handling churches in like backwoods Appalachia that we kind of feel like this word, it, we're a little bit maybe embarrassed of it, or we're a little, we kind of feel like that sounds sort of archaic, accusatory. And the thing is about that word is that it's a word Jesus used all the time. 
In fact, in that passage that I just read to you, it, it, it almost, maybe it kind of made us a little bit uncomfortable because Jesus says it twice. If you don't repent, you too will perish. And if you go to the beginning of Mark's gospel, when Jesus begins his public ministry, the first words out of his mouth are repent and believe in the gospel. And like I said, the people that Jesus was typically talking to when he said these words were not, it it wasn't Jesus was sort of marching into the worst area of towns and saying repent, that Jesus was usually in the temple or the synagogue, or he was with followers who were religious, and, um, and he, was, he was saying to them to repent, to repent and believe in the good news. And so, that should catch our attention. And I, I want to ask this question at the beginning, because words are really important. What if that, what if that word was actually one of the sweetest words in the Bible? And what if that word, uh, kind of taking it out of some of this cultural, with taking, stripping away some of the cultural baggage that it has maybe in our context and in our world, what if we started looking at that word differently and we, and we started to see that the word repentance is actually the thing that leads to the life that we are longing for, the life that we want? What if the word repentance is actually something that leads to acceptance and embrace and forgiveness, and joy. The thing, I think that the reason that it's hard is to repent is to see ourselves as we really are. It's to kind of come to the end of ourselves. It's to come, it's to be so honest that we see ourselves as we, as we truly are to the point where what we know is that we are weak and we are frail and we are wrong, and what we need is not a game plan on how to better ourselves. It's not a lesson in morality that what we need is somebody to save us. And the reason Jesus was always saying this to people who are religious and capable and strong is that often um, it's hardest for us to see that. But as the quote on the front says, as Martin Luther says, that repentance is a way of life for the Christian because it's actually something that brings us joy. So what is happening in this passage? Uh, The the passage that I just read to you, um, like I said, it's a little bit strange. I wish that there was um, almost more uh, of this conversation. I'd always love to hear more of the conversation that Jesus had and what these people were um, what else they were saying to him. But, but essentially, this fascinating discussion is that as they're traveling along, some of the followers who had been watching Jesus and seeing him uh, teaching and healing and doing these things come up to him, and they bring sort of the headline of the day. Like, this is the most burning um, headline of the day, that this is the thing everyone's talking about, that essentially Pilate, who was the Roman governor— its name's familiar to us, right? He sent some folks into some of his officials into a place of worship and killed people. And their blood was, these Galileans' blood was actually mixed with the blood of the sacrifices that was on the altar. I mean, it's just a, 
It's a horrific, tragic event. It was the, it was the headlight of the day. And you go, well, why? So why are they asking Jesus about it? Well, Jesus has a way of sort of sniffing out why people are asking him questions, and he tends to zero in on them. But I think that there's really a couple of reasons probably that they're asking him this question. There's a co- and I think they both sort of have the same motive. And the first reason is that you just have to think of the cultural context, that these are people who are longing for a Messiah. Um, they're longing for one to come and save them from the oppression that they're currently under, that they live under a um, regime that obviously is able to kill at will. And, and so it, it, the best way to think of it maybe is that there, if this was present day, it would be like one of us running up to Jesus and saying, did you, did you hear the news about last Sunday across town, on the other side of town, when city officials sent in a SWAT team to that church and just started massacring people, and that while they were taking communion and their blood was mixed with the wine on the table, um, it's horrible. And they want Jesus, they want, us, they want to hear what he's going to say about this Roman government. They, he wants, they want to hear, like, what, if you're the Messiah, if this is possible, what are you going to do about those evil people? But then on the other hand, I think the other motive, and this is the one that really Jesus picks up on and he draws out, is, you know, they kind of come up to him and they want to know, like, what in the world must, have, must those people have been doing wrong in order to be killed in church? Like those Galileans, they must have been, you know, behind closed doors, there must have been some bad things going on. Because what they're suggesting really to Jesus is that this is God's judgment on them, and they want to hear a little bit more about that. Maybe Jesus has some inside knowledge about their sinfulness and maybe they want to engage in a little bit of gossip about those people. But either way, it's sort of the same motive that they want Jesus to talk about what they see as sort of the main issues and main problems of the day. And the main issues and problems of the day are all other people or other systems. And they're always out there. And Jesus does this over and over and over again that he always turns the table. Because they're like, what's wrong with the world? Well, I mean, obviously, it's this oppressive regime that we live under. It's ruining our lives. Or what's wrong with the world? Well, obviously, it's people like the Galileans. I mean, those, you know, who knows what they were doing, but it was obviously, we're obviously not doing the same things because here we are talking about it. And Jesus' response uh, to this is sort of like, I mean, you always Jesus' responses, sometimes they, they cause people extreme emotions like they want to kill him. And you hear his response here, and you kind of realize often why that's the case, because he basically says to them, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about the things out there. I don't really want to talk about their sin. I want to talk about you. Now, you can hear that in a way that you feel like Jesus is being mean. I think Jesus is being incredibly loving in saying that. Because what he's picking up on right away, right away, is this inclination that we have 
to, to, to always shift blame, to always look out there, to always think the problem is out there. And it's the love of Jesus that says, it's sort of like Jesus always has this little mirror in his pocket and he just kind of like holds it up while you're talking. And you're like, oh. What Jesus is asking, and he says it blatantly, do you think you're better? Do you, like, do you think that you deserve, do you think that they got what they deserve and you're getting right now what, what you deserve? And Jesus is, is helping them. He's taking them by the hand and he's helping them to see that, that the first step in repentance is always looking at ourselves first, that Jesus obviously is also the one that says before you take the speck out of someone else's eye, you might want to pay attention to the log that is in your own eye. And then he goes, all right, if you like headlines, here's another headline for you. That tower in Siloam that fell and killed 18 people. And basically, Jesus kind of throws it back at them, like, do you think that those people were worse, and this is, were worse than everyone in Jerusalem? Now, there's some important people in Jerusalem. There's some very religious people in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, do you think that those 18 people that were killed, do you think that they're worse than everyone else in Jerusalem? They're not. They're not. And I think that we often, what Jesus is picking up on, we often want the events of our life to kind of correlate to how good we think we are or how bad, other peop- how bad we think other people are. And so if good things are kind of happening here, we realize, well, that's probably because we've done something to earn it. And if bad things are happening over there, it's obviously because they've done something to deserve it. And Jesus says, no, like when good things come your way, um, repent. Because you realize that you actually deserved worse than what you just received. And when bad things come your way, repent because you actually, rece- you actually deserve far worse than what you just received. Jesus, he, he doesn't mince his words and he doesn't do that in order to be harsh. And he doesn't do that in order to sort of wag his finger. He does that so that we can be aware of where the real problems lie, because he wants to give us life. And if our inclination is always to look out there, and if our inclination is always to divert attention from being honest about ourselves, what Jesus is saying is that you're not not going to receive life. And you go, well, what about us? I think that, I mean, if you read this passage, even though there's 2,000 years of difference between them and us, there's so much similarities and probably what we would be talking about if, G- if we were walking down the road with Jesus. Jesus, have you seen what's going on politically? Um, have you seen the mess? Or maybe, Jesus, have you seen um, this tragic event that just happened? And I kind of wonder what his reaction would be to some of those questions that we, would ha- that we have. It seems like, based on this passage, that he would immediately be more interested in talking about, about what's going on right here. And maybe even interested in talking about what would even, you know, encourage you to want to bring that up. Like, let's, if, if I'm the Messiah, why don't we talk about you and I? Like, why don't we talk about what's going on in your heart? 
Why don't we talk about your own sin? You know, you think about running up to Jesus and saying things like, Jesus, let me tell you, I mean, just, I think it was a chapter before this, a man runs up to Jesus and says, my brother won't split my inherit- the inheritance with me. Like, that's the most pressing matter in his life. And Jesus is like, I don't want to talk about that. And you think about running up to Jesus and saying, you know, my spouse, like, they're so, they took these vows, and they're always breaking them, and they're never doing what they're supposed to do. And if, if Jesus, if, if they could get it right, then our life would be so much happier. It would be so much better. Or Jesus, my, my boss, like, how he got to be a boss, I don't even know. Like, incompetent, gives other people raises and forgets about me, and I'm working hard over here. It's unjust. You know, whatever it might be that you run up to Jesus with, you can almost at every point think the way he's going to respond is like, let's talk about, let's talk about you. Because he loves you. Because he cares about you. Because he knows that if you're not aware of yourself, then you're not going to really want much to do with the gospel. There's a part of us that loves to see people get what we think that they deserve. And Jesus is asking this group of people, um, like, what do you think you deserve? What do you think you deserve? He catches them, right? He catches them right in the act, and he says, what is it, basically, do you think that you deserve better? Because if you're here today, and you're talking to me, and you're doing this this religious stuff, and you think that the reason that you're here doing that is because you're better than the people out there, then you are dead wrong, is what he says to them. Jesus in a more blunt way than most of us would probably feel comfortable doing, is basically just saying that you're not ready for the good news until you really understand where the bad news actually lies. You're not ready for the good news until you actually see what what you do deserve. You're ready for grace when you realize that grace is something that is not given to us because of anything in and of ourself. Grace is something that is given to us because God has simply chosen to love us despite, of our, despite ourselves. Now, I was trying to, as I was thinking about this passage, I kept thinking about this other passage that I printed in your bulletin, this other kind of example or model of somebody who got it. And it's somebody, the people who get it in the Gospels, it's kind of frustrating because it's never the people that you think should get it. It's always the people that you would think, this guy's never going to get it. He's never going to understand. And usually they're the ones who get it. It's a guy named Zacchaeus. I'm going to read this passage to you. I won't preach another sermon on it. Just talk about it for a second. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. He's a little guy. So he ran on ahead, climbed up in the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. 
And when they saw it, when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to your house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The reason I kept thinking about this passage is because Zacchaeus, um, he was one who was really kind of in bed with the oppressive regime. He was a chief tax collector. The, uh, of the people that were hated, he was right there at the top, but he was also one who they were like, you didn't have to guess what Zacchaeus was doing behind closed doors. Zacchaeus was ripping off his own people using this oppressive government in order to pad his own pockets, that he was, if you had to go into that crowd that day in Jericho that had gathered to see Jesus, and you had to think, kind of, who is the worst person here? Then it would be Zacchaeus. And Jesus makes his way through the crowd. The beauty of this passage is not you know, it's not that Zacchaeus is like climbing up in the tree to see Jesus. The beauty of this passage is that as Jesus marches through the crowd, he seeks out Zacchaeus. He knows he's there. He sees him there. He knows everything about him. And he points up to him. He says, I'm going to go to your house today. And everyone else gets really upset. Because everyone else there. Is, is saying, we're here for the right reasons. This guy is a known sinner. He is a traitor. He is an outcast. He is one who has done everything wrong. And you're going to go and eat at his house today? The beauty of this passage is that Jesus, that what brings repentance in Zacchaeus is that Jesus showed compassion to him. That Zacchaeus didn't stand in the middle of the road while Jesus was making his way through and go, I repent of all that I've done wrong. And Jesus said, very good. Today I'll come to your house. That Jesus calls him and says, I'm going to go to your house today. And it's Jesus' grace and compassion and mercy that leads him to repentance. And I love the way that He just talks so bluntly and honestly about his sin. I've ripped everyone off, and I'll pay him back fourfold. And he's not saying, I'll do that so that I can earn your favor. What he's saying is, I have found something that is so far surpasses what I was collecting over here that it doesn't matter anymore, that I lay down my idols because I have found something that is far greater that he's found something much better. And he's seen himself, and he's seen that his former way of life was leading to death, and he repents and he turns to Jesus. Jesus was always showing us. Here's an example, crowd, of what repentance looks like. It's the person that you hated the most. (laughs) It's the person that you thought was maybe the most lost cause. It's the person who maybe has done everything wrong. And yet they're honest. They've seen themselves for what they are. And they've cried out for mercy.
Repentance is, is the way of the Christian life. It's not a dirty word. It's the word that leads to life because it's honest. It's me seeing myself for what I really am. It's the reason that Luther said on that quote in the front, it's that this is, that repentance is the way of the Christian life. It's again and again waking up every morning and seeing uh, that, that, that Jesus didn't give me a foothold so that now I, I kind of build my own kingdom and my own life, but every day I need him at every moment. I need him at every hour because I see actually like the onion being peeled, there's actually more there than I first realized, and the bitterness of my sin causes Jesus to be sweeter and sweeter and sweeter to me. Does it lead me? Repentance doesn't lead me to despair. It leads me to life. And I think this morning, if you kind of go, if I'm a Christian and I don't think, and, and Jesus is not sweet to us, it's kind of become bland. It's probably because we haven't really looked in the mirror very hard. If Jesus is not sweet to us, it's because we haven't seen how bitter our sin really is. If Jesus is not sweet to us, it's, it's because we ha- we've been looking out there and we're going, those are the people that are pro- the problem with the world, and we haven't taken Jesus' suggestion to, first of all, look at my life and repent. Do you think that you deserve any better? You can hear those words ringing in Jesus' ears, not as a threat, but as an invitation. That his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And what Jesus is looking for is not people who are, who are well-rounded, cleaned up, have already done it all, and gotten it all together. He's, peop- he's looking for people who desperately need him. And when he calls us to repent, he's offering us the opposite of what we deserve. And when we see ourselves rightly, we go, okay, I start, I'm starting to understand what I actually deserve. And Jesus says, you want to hear the good news is that what I want to give you is the, the very opposite of what you deserve. I want to give you, you're going to be a co-heir with Jesus. You're going to be, um, everything that's coming to him is coming to you, that you're adopted into the family of God. The more I'm aware of who I am, the more beautiful, the more amazing, the more miraculous, the more astounding that becomes to me that who am I to be brought into that family? You see, I I think that what Jesus is showing us is that when Christians, when followers of him start to get this, then, then what we should be is the most humble people on the face of the earth because we've seen ourselves for what we really are. We've been offered the opposite of what we actually deserve, that we've offended the maker and the creator of the heavens and earth, and he has responded to us with love. Are we quick to admit and to see and to proclaim, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. This week, I saw an example of that in a place that could be a pretty unlikely place to see an example of it. It was the, the general assembly of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. I know that you were all dying to attend one of these events, um, something you've probably dreamed about. I've been to a few, and um, it's, it's a lot of, as some people say, hitting a gnat with a sledgehammer. Um, but there's things that come along that are really important. It's when we do the business, the business of the church. 
And last year at this assembly, there was a, a resolution or an overture that was put forth that was calling the church to repent of, of its racist past and present and the ways in which it has been um, complicit and oppressing and discriminating against other races and the ways in which we have are well documented. And so we took a year to, to, to repent and to think about it. And this resolution, I'm going to read this to you, and it's not super long, but I, I, I want to read it out loud because I think it models that the problem is not it, it, what Jesus is first and foremost calling us to is, is not to call people out there to repent, but for us to repent ourselves. And I love the way that this models it. It says, Therefore, be it resolved that the 44th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of corporate and historical sins, including those committed during the civil rights era, and continuing racial sins of ourselves and our fathers, such as the segregation of worshipers by race, the exclusion of persons from church membership on the basis of race, the exclusion of churches or elders from membership and the presbyteries on the basis of race, the teaching that the Bible sanctions racial segregation and discourages interracial marriage, the participation in and defense of white supremacist organizations, and the failure to live out the gospel imperative that love does no wrong to neighbor. And be it further resolved that this General Assembly does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of past failures to love brothers and sisters from minority cultures in accordance with what the gospel requires, as well as failures to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters concerning racial sins and personal bigotry, and failing to learn to do good, seek justice, and correct oppression. And be it further resolved that this General Assembly praises and recommits itself to the gospel task of racial reconciliation, diligently seeking effective courses of action to further that goal with humility, sincerity, and zeal for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel, and be it further resolved that the General Assembly urges the congregations and presbyteries of the Presbyterian Church in America to make this resolution known to the members in order that they may prayerfully confess their own racial sins as led by the Spirit, and strive towards racial reconciliation for the advancement of the gospel, and the love of Christ, and the glory of God. That repentance starts, starts with us. And I'm proud of our church, and some might laugh and say, well, that's about 40 or 50 years too late. But we always rejoice when we see ourselves for what we are. And we always repent. And there's rejoicing in heaven over that repentance as well. There's no one here this morning who is so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And there's no one who is so good that you're not in the need of it. And what Jesus does in this passage is he levels the playing field and he says, come unto me. You who are weary, who are trying to do it on your own, who have tried um, with your own work, to be good, to do good, or you who are despairing of the fact that you never are going to be good enough to be in a place like this, he says, come unto me. I'm the one who loves to give rest. I'll, I'll give it to you. It's free. There's no charge. Let's pray. Father, 
we ask that you would just continue to help us look at ourselves honestly. I pray that you would help us um, to see that there are, there's sin, there's things in our life that we're, we've deceived ourselves. We can't see them clearly. And we, we beg you to open our eyes because what we want is to be more and more like your son, Jesus. What we want is for your church um, to be a place of people who are humble and, and not proud, who are not bickering and fighting, but who are quick to see themselves for what they are and to know that we are sinners who are saved by grace and by grace alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.